there's an old story of a young preacher, fresh out of school, who was invited to speak at a small congregation. And I say that he was fresh out of school, and you know the type. You've seen preachers like this, and we've known people like this from other walks of life. He thought he was really something. <laughs> he was really impressed with himself. His, his self-confidence was matched only by his smugness. And so he mounted the pulpit, and he began his lesson, and he quoted from sources, and he cited passages from memory, and I don't know, maybe he even rattled off the cosmological argument for the existence of God. If you were here this morning, you get that. <laughs> but at any rate, he began to notice just a little bit into his sermon that the audience was perplexed. He could see it on their faces. And if you've ever done any sort of public speaking, you can, you can see that look when people aren't grasping what you're trying to say. And it's a helpless feeling, especially if it's, you know, this morning, for instance, I knew I was going to lose some people with what I said, and that's okay. But when you're not planning for that, it's a bad feeling. And so he started to, to, um, to, to fumble for the right words and to, 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 to stammer and to stutter. The flop sweat broke out. He became fearful. Fear turned to panic. And finally, he just gave up. He apologized and he stopped short. He sat down. He felt completely defeated. And he sat down on the front row there next to the old local preacher in that congregation. And the old preacher leaned over to him and he said, if you had come up like you went down, you could have gone down like you went up. James tells us, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you. That's a hymn we sing sometimes. He says a little bit earlier in that chapter, citing Proverbs 3.34, a passage that was also cited in our reading from 1 Peter, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This passage, these passages, the story that we've told, illustrates something that's obvious to it, to us. Pride and humility are opposites. Now, one of those things is our word for this week, humility, and that's a, a virtue that we need to try to cultivate as Christians. The opposite, pride, is a great sin. And it's imperative that we understand that because our society tends to not merely not view pride as something that's problematic. It actually celebrates pride as something that's virtuous in itself. In a lot of cases, pride's a good thing. And if we mean pride in the sense of self-worth, in the sense of recognizing we have value, well, that is a good thing. Self-respect, dignity, we need those things. In fact, those are biblical values. Sometimes Scripture appeals to those very things. We need to remember that we're created in the image of God, so we should never disparage ourselves 
you do have worth. You have value. God thinks that you have value. But if by pride we mean self-importance, arrogance, conceit, Scripture repeatedly calls that a sin. God hates pride, in fact. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, these things that are listed, you probably remember this. Six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. Number one on the list, a proud look or haughty eyes, some translations say. Another place in Proverbs, in chapter 21, the writer says, haughty eyes and a proud heart are sin. Augustine, called pride the greatest of all sins because it means that we displace God and we worship ourselves instead. And you know, that sounds a lot like what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about worshiping the creation, worshiping ourselves rather than worshiping the creator. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, he has an entire chapter devoted to pride and it's entitled The Great Sin. And among other things, he says this, quote, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. That really cuts to the heart, doesn't it? The complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is an insidious thing, and it invades every facet of our lives. We can be proud of ourselves. We can be proud of our accomplishments. We can be proud of our school. We can be proud of our career. We can be proud of our country. We can be proud of our family. We can be proud of our possessions, and we can be proud of all of those things that might be good in themselves in such a way as to take away glory from the one and the only one who deserves it, and that's God. We can even be proud of our humility. There's a fellow I knew, and this is this happened to me. This is an absolutely true story. A fellow that I knew who once said to me without a shred of irony because he had no sense of humor so he wouldn't have been ironic. But a fellow who once said to me, leaned in as if he was confessing some great secret and he said, you know, I'm one of the most humble people I know. No, you're not. (laughs) If you think that, If you say that, you're not. That's not real humility. That's pride. But we can even be proud of how humble we think we are. So let's talk for just a few minutes then about some of the dangers of lacking humility. And then let's see how we might go about developing humility in our lives. So for one thing, A lack of humility causes us to overvalue material things. In our society, we are obsessed with keeping up with the Joneses. We buy things we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people that we don't know. And all of that is rooted in pride, a lack of humility. We want people to think that we're really something. 
and we end up actually trusting in our possessions. We talk about looking out for number one, looking out for me and mine. We value those things, and we forget we don't really have anything. None of this really is ours. Every good thing that we have, every good and perfect gift, as James says, it all comes from God. Everything that we've been blessed with in this life comes from God. We wouldn't have anything if not for his goodness. We shouldn't think that we're particularly great because of anything that we have in this life. Of course, the flip side of that is we can also be proud of our poverty. I have known of some people who make a great show of the fact that they don't need material possessions and they sort of look down on those that have a lot. I think of uh, something that Socrates said to his student Antisthenes. Uh, Antisthenes thought poverty was a great virtue. And so Socrates told him one time, I see your vanity through the holes in your cloak. Well, that's the way that a lot of people are. They think that they're so noble because they're impoverished. But actually, that's just a form of pride, too. See, true humility allows us to put our possessions in their proper place. Blessings from God. But he gives us those things to enjoy them. A lack of humility, secondly, causes arguments. A number of passages in Scripture speak to this. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, in the King James Version, it says, By pride cometh contention. The NIV says, Pride breeds quarrels. You put two people who think they know everything in the same room, you've got the unstoppable force and the immovable object, and they are inevitably going to butt heads. Neither one of them is going to admit even the possibility that they may be wrong. They're just going to keep going at it and digging in, and the arguments just continue on and on and on. Paul writes, Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The Living Bible paraphrases that verse this way. Don't try to act big and don't think that you know it all. Pride provokes arguments. And how many arguments could all of us avoid if we just realize maybe this is something that isn't worth arguing about? Or maybe I don't actually have to be right all the time. So many of our arguments come strictly from pride because I'm, I want to be right or this is important. You see this all the time on the Internet in particular. You know, somebody's wrong, and so I've got to go tell them, give them what for. That's rooted in our pride. There are a lot of other avenues we could explore here, I'm sure, in terms of the way pride affects our relationship with others. But what's most serious of all is that pride hinders or pride inhibits our relationship with God. And it can do that in a few ways. Uh, for one thing, a lack of humility can actually keep us from converting in the first place. Matthew chapter 18 the first four verses, Jesus talks there about the humility that's necessary in order to enter into the kingdom of God. There's a little child there, and he takes and basically plops it down right in front of him, and he says, unless one of you becomes humble like this little child, you can't enter in to the kingdom of heaven. 
I think we see a, a good example of that, one we've looked at recently for those of us who've been in our Wednesday evening class with Felix, the Roman governor. Paul addresses Felix, and he calls him back to him week by week, and it says that Paul reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And it says that Felix trembled. In other words, he believed it. He knew that what Paul was saying was true. But what was his response? Rather than converting, he said, go on, go thy way. When I have a more convenient season, I'll call for you. And of course, as far as we know, that convenient season never came. What kept him from converting? It's not because he didn't believe the truth of Paul's message. It was his pride. How could a Roman governor convert to this weird Jewish sect, these Nazarenes. And of course, he liked to lose his self-control and he liked to be unrighteous. He didn't want to do that. He was proud. He was a Roman. His pride stood in the way of doing what he knew was right. Then too, pride can keep us from confessing sin when we need to. We have to humble ourselves in order to admit that we're in the wrong. That's not easy, is it? <laughs> to say, I'm sorry. To say, I, I know I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. We have to do that with God at times. John chapter 1, 1 John, rather, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. John writes that if we say we have no sin, we're liars. Truth isn't in us. What do we need to do instead? We need to confess our sins. And if we do that, he promises that God's faithful. God will forgive us of our sins. But you see, in order to receive that forgiveness, we can't deny that we're sinners. We have to humble ourselves, and we have to admit there's sin in my life. We have to confess that. And we not only need to confess that to God, we need to confess that to one another. James says that in James chapter 5, confess your faults or your sins to one another and pray for one another. But how many of us are willing to humble ourselves enough to, to be open, to be vulnerable, to admit that we have struggles and we need our brothers and sisters to pray for us? Or you can think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 and this formula he lays out for resolving conflicts in the church. The fact that you go to your brother and you try to address him with the problem and the hope is that he'll say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And if he does that, you've gained your brother. And there's this whole systematic approach to it, but the whole point is that it's, it's difficult for someone to humble themselves and admit that they sinned. But of course, I look around this audience tonight, and at least most of us here, maybe all of us as I look around, but at least most of us here already are Christians. So we've humbled ourselves enough to convert. And probably... Generally speaking, most of the time, we don't have a problem admitting that we have sin in our life. I imagine that most of us pray, we confess our faults, we ask for forgiveness. And so what I think is most dangerous for those of us who are Christians is that a lack of humility can inhibit our relationship with God by causing us to trust in ourselves and in our own goodness and in our own virtue rather than placing our trust in God. The Pharisee, Luke chapter 18, he was guilty of just this sort of pride. Remember that prayer that Jesus says he gives there in the temple? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. And then he starts to list off all the good things he does, how he fasts and how he tithes and how he prays. And the whole point is, man, God, you were really lucky to have a servant like me. Well, sometimes we can be guilty of that. In God, we come up against something that is immeasurably greater than us. And unless we recognize that, unless we recognize our weakness and our imperfection and just how puny we are in comparison to him, we don't really know God at all. How can we say that we believe in God and lack humility? Oh, sure, we admit theoretically, yeah, God is great and God is awesome, and we know that we don't compare to him in any way, but, but secretly, sometimes, we imagine how he approves of us. We look at other people and we look down on them and we think how God must think so much better of us than he does of those others. I mean, after all, like that Pharisee, Lord, I go to church on Sunday morning and on Sunday night and on Wednesday night. Lord, I read my Bible. Lord, I pray. Lord, I'm, I'm a preacher or I'm an elder or I'm a deacon or I work in the food bank or whatever it is. Whenever we allow our religion to make us feel superior to others, you can be sure that that's the devil working on us, not God. And I've got news for you. The devil is perfectly willing to allow us to become self-controlled and to become chaste and to become brave and courageous and all of those other things while all the time pride is working on us inside. He's happy to let us be as good as we want to be in other ways as long as it's causing us to become filled with that sort of pride. Because when we lack humility, that destroys any possibility of contentment. It destroys any possibility of real selfless service to others. It destroys any possibility of having a real love for God. In fact, pride is actually the root of all sin. It's pride that caused the very first sin on earth. Eve looked at that forbidden fruit and she saw that well, it looked pretty good to eat, and she wanted that. And the serpent tempted her, and he said, oh, you won't die if you eat that. God knows that when you eat that, you'll become like him. Well, that sealed it. We all want to be like God. We all want to be our own boss. That's pride. Pride is the root of all sin. As C.S. Lewis said, and I think, again, this is the heart of the matter, it is the complete anti-God state of mind. So I think we get a, a clear idea of how devastating it is to lack humility. How can we cultivate it then? How can we develop humility? Well, first of all, we need to admit we're proud. Now that might seem like a minor thing, but I actually think that's a big thing. We need to be honest and admit we have trouble with pride. We'll never be able to take any of these other steps if we can't admit that. And if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I don't think I'm very proud. <laughs> well, you're very proud indeed, my friend. Secondly, we need 
to remember our own fallibility. We all make mistakes. We all make decisions that were wrong-headed. We all say and do things that we shouldn't. We've all done things that are embarrassing. You know, when we look at the Apostle Paul, I think that this is one of the things that makes him particularly admirable because he never glosses over his past failings. And with Paul, we're not just talking about someone who did things that were stupid or that were embarrassing. As we said in our Bible class this morning, Paul was, in a literal sense, a terrorist. Paul was someone who murdered people. He had them delivered to prison all because he thought he was doing God's work. Those are wicked things. And Paul never attempts to hide that. Again and again, he reminds himself, as he does writing to Timothy, that I am the chief of sinners. Paul's only saved by the grace of God, not because of anything great that he's done. So it's all right to feel good about yourself in the sense of recognizing that you have worth. But remember your fallibility, too. Remember your imperfections, your weaknesses. That helps us to keep things in perspective and to develop humility. Third, we need to remember God's sovereignty. That is, that he's in charge. He's the one who's really in control of things. As Americans in particular, we are really self-reliant. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I don't need anyone to tell me the answers. I'm smart enough to figure it out on my own. I don't want anyone to try to help me. I can do it all on my own. This is a really characteristic mindset in our society. But we have to reach that point with God where we say, God, I can't do it on my own. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I can't save myself. I need you. We have to get rid of our self-reliance and utterly and completely rely on him. I'm as guilty of trying to do it alone as anybody. That's something that I struggle with, and I know I'm not alone in that. We have to instead come to God and admit that he's actually the one in control, not us. Fourth, finally, we need to develop a real sense of service, of being willing servants. Jesus says, for instance, Matthew 20, verse 28, there are parallels in the other synoptic gospels, and this is really sort of the nutshell summary of his purpose on this earth. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet sometimes we can be Christians for decades and still expect us, others to be serving us rather than going around and doing the serving. When I think of Jesus being a servant, I think particularly of the story recorded in John chapter 13 on that last night of his life where he washes the disciples' feet. Now, as we all know, this was the most menial of tasks that a servant could do. I mean, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't really relish the idea of washing anybody else's feet today. And we live in a world where everybody wears shoes. A lot of the times they're, they're closed-toed shoes, at least mine. I don't own a pair of sandals. It's probably not surprising. But uh, <laughs> um, most of the time we're wearing shoes. We walk around on sidewalks or on paved streets most of the time. But in the first century world, you're wearing sandals and you're walking around 
dusty roads. It's not as if they were paved. And you're walking around where a lot of animals are, so there's a lot worse than dust that gets on your feet at times. I don't need to draw you a picture of that. At any rate, it's a disgusting thing, more so than it would be even now. And washing somebody's feet would not be just pleasant now. And so this is something that's relegated. If you have a household with multiple servants, the lowest man on the totem pole gets that job. Nobody wants to be the one to wash someone else's feet. And yet Jesus picks up a towel and he wraps it around himself and he humbles himself enough to wash the feet of his disciples. Not just his disciples, but remember Judas is in that room. Jesus humbles himself enough to wash the feet of the man that he knows has already betrayed him. A man who sold him out to his enemies and is going to be responsible for his excruciating death in just a matter of hours. And the whole purpose of doing this was to teach them humility. Because just before that, they'd been arguing one more time about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They were too full of pride. They all wanted to be that right-hand man. And so Jesus taught them this object lesson in humility. He cleansed their feet so that he might cleanse their hearts. How can we say that we're his followers and still be waiting around for other people to serve us? How can we say that we follow a man who claimed that his mission was to serve others and not be willing to serve others ourselves? So the only way we can really and truly develop this virtue of humility is by being willing to be a servant of others. And if we truly want to imitate our Lord, if we want to be remade in his image, we'll do that. Because he humbled himself more than we could possibly imagine. Paul really ties all of this together, writing about Jesus and the importance of humility in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. May God help us to emulate our Lord Jesus. May God help us to humble ourselves. If you're here this evening, and there's sin in your life. And you need to humble yourself and to come and repent in a public way. You have the opportunity to do that now while we stand and while we sing.